Yellow. Okay, are we Yellow. doing this or what? There it is. Okay. Today, we have... Yes? No? What? I don't know. Sin and Chin. Sin and Chin. From Two Front Teeth, or as Mr. Spock likes to do it right there, which also means sharp, press, eat, or two. Uh, rulers prosecute, uh, persecute me without cause, but my heart trembles at your word. I rejoice in your promise like one who finds great spoil. I have, I hate and abhor falsehoods, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous laws. Great peace have they who love your law, and nothing can, take, can make them stumble. I wait for your salvation, O Lord, and I follow your commands. I obey your statutes, for I love them greatly. I obey your precepts and your statutes, for all my ways are known to you. Good stuff. All right, let's see. We got uh, Stuart. Lost his job. He needs a new one to replace it. He and his wife, Cindy, are in hopes. Please keep them in prayer. Very nice people. Yes. Uh, Mike is having a hiatal hernia procedure on Friday. And uh, I know that's uh, kind of a pain in the neck when you've got one of those things malfunctioning. So no, we'll, it's a pain it's in the stomach. Yeah, I know, but <laughs> so it's further down. It, it, it's but you <laughs> end up jarring your neck because of the pain in your stomach. So it's actually both. Is this the Mike who was just here? No. Okay. It's a different Mike. Okay. Anyway, great guy. Keep Mike in prayer. And today is 13 October. We've been now in this building as of today for exactly nine years. Wow. Uh, yeah, nine years as oh, of today. Wow. So there you go. In this building. I thought it was longer. Nope. I don't know why. I feels like it. I feel like I'm maybe 50 to me. 65 years, 70 years. I don't know. Uh, not really. It went by in a jiffy. Okay, let's see here. October 13th. Can God be trusted with our children? The early years on the mission field were very difficult for Jonathan and Rose Goforth. Well, that's a good name to have oh. if you're going to go out and go be a missionary. And <laughs> Four of their eight children died in their first 12 years in China. During the Boxer Rebellion of 1900, the family barely escaped with their lives. They traveled home to Canada for a brief furlough and then returned to China with a new addition to their family, little Constance, who was born during the furlough. Back in China, Jonathan's new responsibility was to evangelize one-third of the Changti region. On their way to the mission station, Jonathan told Rose about the plan he felt God had given him to reach this goal. He would send one of his assistants ahead to rent a place for the family to live for a month. Once there, Jonathan would preach in the streets or villages during the day while Rose would preach to the women in their courtyard. Each evening, they would hold a service in their home with Jonathan preaching and Rose playing the organ. At the end of the month, they would move to another town, leaving behind an evangelist to teach the new believers. Rose thought it sounded like a wonderful plan, but as they had five little ones, she was adamantly against it. She would remain at their home at the Changti Mission Station, and that was that. Having already buried four children in China, she could not bear the thought of losing another, and she was convinced Jonathan's plan would put the children's lives at risk. As they made the long river journey to Changti, Jonathan continued to plead with Rose. He also loved their children dearly and couldn't bear the thought of losing another, yet God had given him an inexplicable peace that they would be safe if they followed this plan. 
Finally, Jonathan said to her, Rose, I am so sure this plan is of God that I fear for the children if you disobey this call. The safest place for the children is the path of duty. You think you can keep your children safe in your comfortable home in Changdi, but God may show you you cannot. But he can and will keep the children if you trust him and step out in faith. The Go Force reached their home at Changti on a Saturday evening. On Sunday morning, Rose left the children with their faithful servant. Two hours later, Rose returned to find their son Wallace ill. The doctor was called and he diagnosed it as one of the worst cases of dysentery he had ever seen. For two weeks, Jonathan and Rose struggled for the child's life. Finally, Wallace began to recover. When Jonathan felt confident that his son would survive, he left to begin his evangelistic tour alone. The day after Jonathan left, baby Constance became suddenly ill, just as Wallace had, only much worse. By the time Jonathan arrived, Constance was dying. As the two parents knelt beside her, Rose suddenly experienced a relation of God's love in a way she hadn't considered before, as a father. All of a sudden, she was filled with the realization that her heavenly father could be trusted to keep her children. It so overwhelmed her that she could only bow her head and pray. Oh God, is it too late for Constance? But I will trust. I will go where you want me to go, but keep my children. Such peace and joy came over Rose that when Jonathan turned to her and sorrowfully said Constance is gone, she was comforted knowing that her baby's life had not been in vain. Little Constance was buried next to two of her sisters on October 13th of 1902, her first birthday. Armed with a renewed trust in God's faithfulness, Rose had two more children while they served as missionaries, but no more died in China. What lessons can you learn from the experiences of Rose Goforth? Are there things for which you find it difficult to trust God? Rose discovered that the path of faith is the path of obedience. Hebrews 11.1, what is faith? It is the confident assurance that what we hope for is going to happen. It is the evidence of things we cannot yet see. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come into your presence and hear that story of those people over there in China. And It reminds us we've got friends and missionaries also in other places of the world that are in their own difficult situations and they also have possible life-threatening situations come forth at any time. So we would lift up all the missionaries that we know and that we love and that we support and, and uh, those people that are faithfully teaching and preaching your word and uh, building little communities for people to understand the grace of God in Christ. We certainly do lift them up. And we also ask that you would be with uh, the people we mentioned concerning uh, their conditions, uh, loss of job and also of uh, uh, hiatal hernia and anybody else that's suffering, Lord, we would lift them up as well so that you would uh, be glorified in their healing. And if it doesn't happen, help them to understand that you are a good and great Father and that the things that happen in our lives are directed by you who truly love us because of Christ our Lord. And Lord, we pray for this class that it would be conducted properly and that the doctrine would be satisfactory to you and that if it's not, that you would correct us, letting us know what is improper. Lord, we pray this that you'll be glorified, and we certainly pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we are in the book of Colossians, and uh, we're up to 2.8. Let's see. Okay, there it is, 2.8. Is that where we are? Yes, it is. So I needed to make a thing last week, and I didn't. 
So shame and on I'll, me. And I'll start at the beginning of That's the paragraph. Good. That's so. good. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Eight. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Okay, this one says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Mm -hmm. All right, so there you go with that. Let's see here. We have... Chapter 2, verse 8. How's your dad doing? Oh, no. Up here or down there? There. Okay. Well, we'll have him in prayer. Oh, boy. Really? How bad? Is he in the hospital? Is he in the hospital? Bad? Or is he in the, in the hospital? He's not. Okay. That's a, that's, all right. That's a we'll have him in prayer. How about your mom? Is she all right? She got it, too? Oh, but does she have it, too? Okay. Well, at least she can... Get him through this, hopefully. Yes. Oh boy, uh, you know what I recommend, and if you don't, I can tell you afterward what you can take. Don't want to say it right now while we're streaming, but anyway, big help helped a lot of us in here. All right, um, let's see here. We're in verse two eight. Um, in verse three, Paul noted that it is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. After that, he gave his general urgings, which were based on that. Now he gives a specific exhortation intended to keep them on the right track by explaining what is to be avoided. This will be followed up with a positive statement concerning Christ in order to contrast what he now says. He begins his uh, verse here with beware. The Greek word gives the idea of being observant, and so it would appropriately read watch out. He is giving them a strong admonition that dangers are out there and that the enemy has them ready to ensnare any who are not attentive. His next words show that there will be loss if one is not carefully attentive by saying, lest anyone cheat you. He uses a word, sula gogeo, which is found only here in scripture. It gives the idea of being taken captive as if plunder in a war or to be made a victim through fraud. If one isn't watching, the result will come surprisingly and there will be great loss. Little example with that is uh, we got a, Burke and I got an email from somebody that's in the church here today and it was not from that person, but they took the email and changed it just enough where it looked like it was from them and then they wanted to cheat us out of, uh, you know, in other words, do you use Amazon? And then, of course, you say, well, you go back and you say, yes, I do. Well, I need help, and I need you to help send me some money and blah, 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 blah. Then same thing. I would thing. like to know where that emanated from because people online who know the church from way off said the same thing. Yeah, it, somehow they got a hold of a distribution list or something. Somebody sent out a mass email, or maybe they hacked somebody's email and they got the distribution list. So that's what's going on there. And I have no idea where it came from. No, I, so, you know, I hope you don't. Yeah. sometimes the email to BCC, sometimes the email that is sent to the whole church, yeah. is the old email address. Absolutely. So Even when I blind copy? When you blind copy, it's good. Yes, but sometimes good. it doesn't go okay. through blind copy. It's rare. Once a year it happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, that's what happened. And so same thing. Watch out. Be attentive. 
okay? And as it says, to be made a victim, victim through fraud. Well, Paul doesn't want his audience, which means us, because it's including us in the epistle, to be a victim through fraud. In this case, it's a spiritual fraud. If one isn't watching, the result will come surprisingly, and there will be great loss. From there, what is to be watched for is stated, and also what its characteristics are like. One must watch for possibly being ensnared, as Paul says, his words, through philosophy and empty deceit. In the Greek, there is an article before philosophy, and thus it says, the philosophy. <clears throat> Not all philosophy is bad. We talked about that, I think, last week, okay? Paul cites, oh yeah, it says right here, Paul cites some reasonable uh, philosophy in Acts chapter 17. He also does in the book of Titus. Actually, in Titus, he makes a point by uh, uh, citing a paradox, okay, um, when he says that all Cretans are liars. liars. <laughs> and it was said by a Cretan. So how could that be true? And at the same time, how could it be false? So it's a paradox, and he did that for a purpose. So sometimes philosophy is there to trip you up or to get you to think, whatever. Not all philosophy is bad, but Paul does cite some reasonable philosophy in Acts chapter 17. Did I cite those last week? I did. did. Okay. So, mm -hmm. however, there is a specific philosophy. How are you tonight, Miss Garrett? Everything okay? Oh, good. There she is. Um, there is a specific philosophy which is then described by Paul as empty deceit. These words explain the philosophy. You have the, the philosophy which is empty deceit. Okay, therefore it should read, the philosophy which is empty deceit. With this, Paul will next go on to describe the characteristics of such philosophy so it can, in fact, be watched out for. Uh, we talked about that during the doctrine sermons, all kinds of fallacies that people uh, uh, bring up in their thinking and in their the way they write. And, uh, you know, it's some, sometimes it's intentional, sometimes it's manipulative, sometimes it's not. It's just people aren't thinking clearly and they come up with things and they end up deceiving people. And that's just the way it happens. So um, I happen to know that because Maya did a Bible bite just this past week on that particular sermon and she was talking about the fallacies. It might even been yesterday. It was very recently. But um, it's nice to watch those because I keep getting reminders of things that I should have at the front of my small little brain. Anyway, first such philosophy is according to the, Paul's words, according to the tradition of men. Jesus continually warned Israel of the traditions of men, such as in Matthew 15, two through six and Mark seven, three through nine. Such traditions, and I think that's probably, I was listening to Mark today, so, whoops, I got my Bible right here. Um, Mark, uh, what did I say, seven, three through nine. We'll go there and we'll just see if that's what I was listening to. I think I listened to almost the whole book of Mark just driving around today, and I did not drive a lot. So if you, uh, if you drive a car, then you could probably benefit by getting a Bible and listening to it while you drive because you can do a whole book of the Bible in just a very short distance. Anyway, um, we got um, Matthew. Did I make anybody convicted here? No. Okay. Um, uh, for the Pharisees and all the Jews, that's exactly what I was thinking of. Do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. I remember this. I was backing into my driveway today because we had some construction people there, and so I had to work around them, and uh, I was thinking about exactly what he was saying here. Um, they hold to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. 
Okay, and what I was thinking of, I better go on. I said through nine, didn't I? Yes. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do you, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other things, uh, such things you do. Okay, so when I was backing up and listening to that, uh, I actually heard somebody one time say, well, see, that, that doesn't make any sense because if he's God, he would know that washing your hands is good and, you know, you avoid disease and stuff. I, some stupid comment somebody made. He's not telling you not to do those things. That's not what he's doing. He's saying what the, they're, yeah, they're, they're raising these, these things that they do up to the level of Scripture. And they're actually putting them above Scripture because they're not being obedient to Scripture while they're mandating that people do these things. Okay? If you eat with your hands dirty, there's nothing in the Bible that says that there's anything wrong with that. You may get sick. You may not. But you might get sick from washing your hands at the same time because the food is bad or whatever. That's, he wasn't making any point about the habit of people. He was making a point about taking a habit and putting it up above Scripture. So if you ever hear that argument, that would be a fallacy. That's a uh, misdirection of thinking because he's talking about one thing and they're over here making a category mistake by saying, oh, well, see, don't listen to that, okay? Jesus is fully aware that if you wash your hands with soap and water that you'll wash the bugs off, okay? He knows these things. And when I say bugs, I'm talking about microscopic bugs. Nobody has bugs walking around on their hands, okay? But whatever. Um, so, but the point is scripture versus tradition. And this is what Paul is now relaying to us as well. Such traditions derive their authority not from Scripture or the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as passed on through the apostles, but it came from the authority of men. And these traditions were twofold. <clears throat> the first consisted of those which were derived from the Jewish traditions, such as referred to by Jesus. And then there were those of the Greek philosophers. They often sought after wisdom, but not the wisdom of God. Instead, it was of superstition. Okay, I said this in a couple sermons over the past year. I know I have, and I think I've got one coming up in a sermon in the near future, okay? These people, as a matter of fact, it may have been Monday I typed this. It might have been last Monday. I, I get confused. Anyway, um, uh, people will cite the rabbis as if what they say is, you know, inspired. And yeah, and I got to tell you what, that is probably the poorest place on this planet to get your doctrine from, is from a rabbi that has written a commentary on the Bible when they've rejected Jesus, okay? And yet you hear it all the time. Now, there's nothing wrong with reading a rabbinic commentary, okay? They have insights into certain things that maybe other people don't, but everybody has certain insights into things that people, other people don't, okay? But if you are going to find out the answer to something that is in Scripture, I would rather go pretty much anywhere than to the rabbis to get their commentary. And it might be, have been this past Monday, it was just one of those things that totally irked me that um, I think it was John Gill. That it was. It was John Gill citing something from Joshua 12, I believe. It's coming back slowly. Anyway, then I, was, I think I made it the commentary of my opening for the sermon because it's just so obvious. Don't get your doctrine from places that are already not scriptural, okay? It's just not wise. 
The second one, as I said, is he notes philosophy, which is according to the basic principles of this world. The word translated as principles is stocheion. It means properly fundamentals. This is helps word studies. Fundamentals like with the basic components of a philosophy, structure, and so on, or figuratively, first principles, like the basic fundamentals of Christianity. Okay, it can be a good thing, it can be a bad thing. It's just simply a type of philosophy. Paul is talking about empty or vain philosophy. It further refers to the rudiments with which mankind were indoctrinated before the time of Christ. For example, the elements of religious training, or the ceremonial precepts common alike to the worship of Jews and Gentiles. And that was written by J. Thayer. Okay, that's Thayer's commentary on the New Testament. <clears throat> Both Jew and Gentile had worldly systems in that they did not transcend this world. Each participated in ritual sacrifices. Each had certain feast days. Each had systems which only pointed to spiritual and heavenly things. Okay, the feast days of the Bible are obviously there because they're inspired by God, but they do not explain the problem of sin. They, they deal with the problem of sin for Israel, but they do not explain it properly because they only anticipate the coming of Christ. As it says in the book of Hebrews, explaining those things, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. So they do not explain the situation properly they fall short of a full explanation. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with the law of Moses. There is nothing wrong with the way the feast days are presented. They give us a solution, a temporary solution to the sin problem. But as it says in the book of Hebrews, that if these things were effective for taking care of sins, what would have happened? It would have been salvation. Well, Christ. no. They would have been done one time, and then, and then that would have ended. And the Bible says that they did not. Year after year, they were given as a reminder of sin. And so the Jewish people thinking, well, my sin is being atoned for, didn't stop and think, well, why am I going back here again next week? You know, I, I committed my own personal sin. I got to take this animal down to Jerusalem, and I've got to sacrifice for it. Okay, and then the next year, even if they don't feel they did anything wrong, these guys here that were talking to Jesus, I'm, I'm just a sinless dude, I'm Mr. Righteous. They all observed the Day of Atonement anyway, okay? Whether they had the right heart or not, the Lord knows, but they still had, according to the law of Moses, had to observe the Day of Atonement. And it, it should tell them, it should just wake them up, that what we are doing is not effective for the removal of our sins. Because if they were, we would have done it last year and we wouldn't be doing it again this year. But year after year, they have a reminder of the sins, hence the need for Jesus, okay? And if they had thought it through, they would have said, well, why isn't it effective? Why does it only last for one year? And then they could have, if they thought their traditions, and I'm not talking about their own personal traditions, I'm talking about their traditions handed down by Moses, their laws. If they thought those things through, they would have said, we have sin, we're forgiven of our sin, and then we have to be forgiven again. So there is a defect in the process, and they would have been able to logically consider, well, what are we doing that doesn't allow the permanent removal of sin? And they would have to think, well, I sacrificed on this time a lamb, this time I did a, a you know, whatever, an ox, and this time the high priest did a goat for the sins of the congregation. 
the, scent, the animals must not be effective. And they could have thought that through. They may not have known what the resolution was unless they looked at scripture from the right perspective, which says that Messiah would come and die for them. And they all would have known that if they had read the Bible properly. But they're thinking that the Messiah is going to come and, you know, deliver them from Rome. And that's not why he came. He came to deliver them from sin permanently. One offering forever. And they could have deduced this, but they didn't. And to this day, people do not rightly deduce that. They don't understand the book of Hebrews or they never read it and they don't follow through with what Hebrews is telling them. And so what do they do? They go back to the law of Moses and they start observing things that had no purpose in the first place except to teach them, meaning Israel, that they needed Jesus. That was the whole purpose of the law, okay? And then by going back to the law of Moses, they pick and choose what they want to because there is no temple in Jerusalem they're not Jews anyways, on and on and on and on, and they don't stop and do what we need to do with every single bit of the Bible. Think through why God gave us this. Why did he tell this to Noah? Why did, you know, right now I'm talking, I think it was yesterday I typed a commentary on the law of Moses, and it was Peter saying, well, you know, no, Lord, I, he's reiterating what he said in Acts chapter 10. This is Acts chapter 11 now, and he's telling the people you went and eat with Gentiles, and he's explaining to them why he did that. Then, so I, in my life application part of it, I start talking about Noah. Noah wasn't required to do those things, and yet Peter and all the other Jews were required to do those things. Well, what's the difference? Is is that animal over there, and it's according to the law of Moses, you can't eat it. It's unclean for you. Is that animal really unclean? That's the question you should ask yourself. Because if it is, then why was Noah allowed to eat it? Right. That's a great question. I never thought about it. Well, there you go. And if you want, in another uh, nine days, you read that commentary, and I completely explain why, you know, just sitting down 3 o'clock in the morning, I try to think these things through. Why would it be that, why would that be the case? And so what is the law doing? What is the law doing when it's introduced? Well, it, it, it's foreshadowing. Making, That's one thing. I'm talking about with that animal. Oh, with that animal. What is it doing? It's putting it under... It is making that animal unclean. Right. That's right. what the law does. That's what the law does. The law brings about the knowledge of sin. Okay? There was no sin for Noah because there was no law that says that doesn't do it. So here's the question, and you don't have to read the commentary after I ask you this because I'll give you the gist of it. What does that mean about the Jews today? that have rejected Jesus. Well, they have nothing to sacrifice, that's for sure. Well, we're not talking about sacrifice. We're talking about dietary laws. Everything would be clean then. Everything would be double unclean. They are double, they think that they're clean. They're not eating these animals and they're saying, well, I'm righteous before God and I'm, I'm clean. They're actually double unclean. They're unclean before the law because they cannot meet the demands of the law, and they are unclean before God because of their rejection of Christ. They are actually double unclean. The Jews out there that are saying, we are the righteous, we are the tzedek, we're the clean people, are actually double unclean. Okay? So anyway, read the commentary. I explain it there, and that'll, that'll help you to think that through. But these kind of things are important. And if they had sat down and thought those things through before the coming of Christ, when Christ came, they wouldn't have rejected him. 
okay? But they were relying on their own righteousness. You have a question. I can see it on your face. No, I'm thinking oh, this would okay. be a great conversation started with some of my Jewish friends. Oh, well, d yeah, there you go. Do it. That's do it. Idea. I thought you were going to ask something, but no. he's, he's over there. His wheels are spinning. Right. Okay, so Burke liked today's commentary. I don't remember. I read it after you uh, you sent it to me. I said, I'm going to go read it, and I read it, and I can't remember now because i got a lot going on. But Burke was very happy, and he actually said, you should convert that into a tract. To yeah. Oh, it was about um, baptism, wasn't it? Was that? Uh, yes. The, yes. The, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. That's today's the 13th. Let me have that. We'll just yes, read, you we'll, can have we'll, that right now. Okay. <laughs> we'll just we'll read it right now. Is this the commentary? How yeah. did you get this up? Uh, magic. <laughs> it was like well, <laughs> but I just started talking about it. That's why well, I looked it up. <laughs> okay. I, now I'm going to read this because you you brought it up. Did okay, I? we're going to take a quick diversion from Colossians. It won't take more than 45 minutes, okay? <laughs> this is Thursday, 13 October 2022. He read the verse, but I'll read it again. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. Okay, so this is the Holy Spirit coming upon who? Oh, the Gentiles. Gentiles. Yeah. Cornelius, Cornelius and his house. Yeah. Okay, so here we go. Peter completed his words to Cornelius. Does anybody mind me right reading this? No, no. Okay. Because he said that, and I, it, it kind of spurred my interest. So, uh, Peter completed his words to Cornelius in the last verse with the words, To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, meaning Jesus, whoever believes, uh, Jody Meisler, you're, <laughs> she's sending an email, and I don't understand what just happened. Please. My hand buzzed. Don't do that again. That scared me. Okay. <laughs> to him, Jesus, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him, will receive remission of sins. That's what Peter said, okay? That is, Peter said that to the Gentiles. Right. He didn't say anything else about law observance. All he did was say the, the simple gospel. That was it. While Peter was still speaking, it now says there was nothing of what was said to Israel. Oh, wait a minute, I, I missed something. Um, the words were direct and they included nothing else. And yet now it says, while Peter was still speaking these words, there was nothing of what was said to Israel in Acts 2.38. Okay, remember Acts 2.38 when uh, the Holy Spirit came down upon the Jews, the, the believers, mm -hmm. but it didn't come upon the others. What did he tell them they had to do? Repent, Repent and be baptized. Right. Nothing about that. Okay, it says, then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter was speaking to Israel who had just crucified their Messiah. There was nothing for these Gentiles to repent of, meaning change one's mind. That's all the word repent means, change your mind. There was nothing for them to repent of because they had not done anything requiring repentance. This is the problem with those tracts, not those there, but tracts that people hand out when it says you must repent. Well, people think that repent means you have to do something. I gotta give up my sins. I've gotta go make myself better. I've gotta do this and that. And that is taking this cart and it's putting it in front of this horse. And the rest of your life, you're trying to push forward when Christ is the one that changes you. He pulls you into the cleansing, okay? So, um, Peter was speaking to Israel who had just crucified their Messiah. There was no need for these Gentiles to be baptized in water in order to outwardly demonstrate that they had changed their minds. Instead, the inference that must be derived from the narrative is that when Peter had said, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins, that they had, in fact, believed. That's all that happened. They believed his words, and yet 
It was not a belief that required an outward validation, such as them saying, yes, I believe. Rather, it was an inward belief alone by simply hearing Peter's words and then by believing in their hearts. The heart in the Bible is the center of our moral being and the place where our volitional choices are made. It says that the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. They believed in their heart without saying anything out loud. There's nothing recorded other than Peter saying this, and then the Holy Spirit came down on them. This means that they heard the word as spoken by Peter. They had faith in what that word said. They then were endowed with the Holy Spirit. This is the process that Paul actually states in the book of Romans. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. From there, the process continues in Ephesians chapter 1. I love reading this. I've read it in probably 18,927 Bible studies. In him, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, they just believed, that's what they just did, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. The process then is hear the word of God, have faith in the word, which is then manifest in the heart, meaning trusting. And at that moment, the sealing of the Holy Spirit is accomplished. In the case of Cornelius and those with him, there is a difference to this process though, isn't there? As Vincent's Word Studies rightly notes, the only example of the bestowment of the Spirit before baptism. That's Vincent, he says, well, look at this. They were bestowed the Spirit before baptism. All the other times in Acts, somebody had to be baptized. He didn't explain why, though. He just says, isn't that curious? Remember Acts chapter 2? Remember Acts chapter 8? Okay. It is the epistles that set doctrine and explain that which is normative for this dispensation. Normative means normal. The epistles explain what is normal for you and I. We believe, we hear, we are sealed. That is normal. Okay. What is normative? The account now in Acts is a descriptive account. It prescribes nothing, but simply tells what happened. As the epistles tell what is prescriptive, what is normative, and what can thus be expected, the account now in Acts observes uh, or obviously serves a particular purpose. It's not normative, right? So it must serve a purpose. That purpose is explained in the words of Jesus to Peter. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And also I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Does anybody know what the rock is? It's not Peter. It's the proclamation, you are the Christ. That is the, the rock, okay? And the gate of Hades, gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. There it is, right there. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That is what the whole purpose of these baptisms from Acts 2, 8, and 10 are intended for. Peter was the apostle selected by Jesus to confirm that access to heaven is granted to various people, groups, people groups reflected in Acts. Jew. Acts 2, Samaritans, Acts 8, Gentile, Acts 10. He is the only one recorded as being present 
at all three instances where the Holy Spirit came upon the believers. Thus, it is he who was given as a witness to confirm these events. He was there in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit came upon them at Pentecost. He was there to tell those who did not believe what they must do in order to receive the Spirit. Repent, be baptized for remission, and then receive. He held the keys to heaven in regard to what they must do in order to be granted remission and given access to God's paradise. He was there in Acts chapter 8. The people had already believed the message, but they did not receive the Spirit. Remember that? Here's what it says, Acts 8. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they believed just like the Cornelius did. They sent Peter and John to them who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Here it is. For as yet, he had not fallen upon them. He had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord, Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Spirit. Peter is present in Acts 2. Peter is present in Acts 8. Until Peter came, the confirmation, meaning the coming of the Spirit, was not given. Peter had the keys to heaven, meaning the validation that these believers had been received. And now in Acts 10, the process was repeated. Remember that the Ethiopian eunuch had already received Jesus, didn't he? He was saved based on faith, but who wasn't present? Peter. Peter. So it doesn't count. It doesn't, it's, it counts for that guy, but it doesn't count for the witness because Peter has the keys. As such, a demonstration of Gentile salvation was still required for Peter, who held the keys to heaven. That demonstration is now realized right here in Acts 10. Acts 2, for believers, faith in Jesus, visibly received the Spirit. For those Jewish non-believers, follow the words of Peter concerning repentance and baptism because they had first rejected Jesus. From there, receive the Spirit. Acts 8. Receive the word and believe. Wait for Peter to validate the event with the laying on of hands, then visibly receive the Spirit. Acts 10, Peter preaches the word concerning Jesus. Gentiles hear the word and believe in their hearts. The Spirit is visibly received. And so the question is, of these three accounts, which one is normative? None. None. Which is the one to be expected in the future? None. The answer is that none of the three accounts is normative. Peter has validated that all, Jew, Samaritan, and Gentile, have been saved by faith and by faith alone in the work of Jesus Christ. He had also told those of Israel who had rejected Jesus that they had to repent, change their minds about the rejection, openly acknowledge this, and they too would receive the Spirit. That is never needed again, except by those who first reject Jesus. Suppose I met Sergio on the road today and I said, we'll pick somebody that isn't Jewish because I don't want to make it like Acts 2. Jim has never heard of Jesus. I go up and I give him the gospel and he says, I don't believe that and he leaves. Guess what he has to do? He has to repent because he has to change his mind about who is Jesus. Okay? That is what repentance means. Don't ever let anybody add anything into that. So Rep technically, wouldn't everybody have to repent? Because no, because some people have never heard of Jesus, like Cornelius. He'd never heard. He had nothing to repent of. He heard the gospel, and he was given the... the but today, it's safe to assume pretty much everybody heard about... Believe it or not, no. No? I used to think that, too. Everybody's heard of Jesus. I've talked to people in the past month that had no idea. I've heard of him, but they have no idea who he is. Uh, I see. It's they like hearing of Muhammad. Okay. Right. Yeah. I mean, 
You have no idea. And so the answer really is no. If they reject Jesus, if they reject the gospel, then they must repent. Okay? So, um, change, their mind. change their mind. Okay? Now when a person rejects Jesus and he later changes his mind, meaning repents, he receives the Spirit upon belief. For those who have never rejected Jesus, the formula of the epistles that I noted above is what is normative and now occurs. You hear the word, you believe, you are sealed with the Spirit, and it is done. Expect nothing else. No outward signs of the Spirit is necessary, nor is it to be expected, because the proof has been provided to Peter. What do you see over there? Oh. Is, he's seeing something. What? What? Oh. My shoe, oh my gosh. I, he's doing right. something. That's, that's magic right okay. there. Okay, okay. That's all right. I got, I got to go back. No outward display of the Spirit is necessary, nor is it to be expected, because the proof has been provided to Peter. It was witnessed as required by Scripture, and it is now documented in Scripture. Hence, these examples are the recorded proofs necessary for those who believe the gospel to know that they, too, are saved upon faith alone in the work of Jesus Christ. That's it. That is what is normative. You tell somebody the gospel, he believes the Spirit seals him. It is done. Life application. What has been presented in Acts concerning salvation clearly demonstrates that there is one and only one gospel. It is also a clear demonstration that this gospel is open to all, to Jew and Gentile, through faith alone. Now, our doctrine is to be obtained from the epistles. The very descriptive accounts and acts are intended to lead us to the stabilizing instructions found in the epistles. The words of Jesus in Acts 1 are being realized with the reception of the Spirit by Cornelius and those with him. Here's what it said. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The word went first to Jerusalem, Acts 2. It then went to Judea and Samaria through Acts 8. Now it begins to go to the end of the earth with the inclusion of these Gentiles in the presence of Peter. With this baseline established, the word will continue to go forth, but without the necessity of Peter verifying what had occurred. He'd still be alive today if it was necessary. He's not. The keys to heaven have been used for Jew, Samaritan, and Gentile. Thank you for that. Wow, that was great. Okay, so there you go. No, not my commentary, the phone. Yeah, okay. The phone? Wait, can we get that? No, 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 no. It was great that he had it. It's great that he had it. Okay, so we're going to go up. Go on. Uh, the only difference is that the law actually pointed to Christ. Other than that, it was still only, I better go back. Um, yes, um, Paul uses the word, uh, I better go back even one more I just read theirs. Both Jew and Gentile had worldly systems and that they did not transcend this world. Each participated in ritual sacrifices. Each had certain feast days. Each had systems which only pointed to spiritual and heavenly things. That is what I was talking about right then. Going on. Paul uses the term stocheon to speak of these systems in a negative light. As I said, it can be positive. It can be negative. He's talking about them in a negative light. They refer to any such worldly system, whether law or Gentile religion. The only difference is that the law actually pointed to Christ if they had sat down and tried to figure that out. Other than that, it was still only a type and a shadow. Where is that recorded? Type and shadow. Anybody? 
Hebrews, it does say these are shadows. I'm specifically thinking of the book of Colossians. We're in it right now. Mm. Turn one page and go to, uh, we'll just go back to 14. Having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. That is the law of Moses, wiped out. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Here we go, 15 and 16. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Verse 16, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance is of Christ. The substance. As I said, the people want the law. They go to the law and all they get is a shadow. And if you take Christ, you don't just get the shadow, you get the substance and the shadow goes with it. The law is fulfilled in Christ. Everything is complete in him. Okay, so he finishes up this thought with these, that these things are not according to Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Therefore, to mandate observing anything from the law which is fulfilled, instead of honoring Christ who did the fulfilling, is empty deceit. Um, somebody sent me an email. I don't want to get too deep into this, but somebody sent me an email and he met some people uh, and uh, he talked to them about Jesus. They were believers and they're in a messianic synagogue. And he sent me the link to their site today. And I haven't had time to follow through with this, but I immediately went to the site. And one of the things that they believe is that the fall feasts are not yet fulfilled. Okay, and that's too bad. And I, I don't want to be uh, high-handed and send them an email and tell them how wrong they are. Okay, I didn't want to do that. So I got to think this through, but they are wrong because if the fall feasts are not fulfilled, then what? Jesus didn't Jesus the, didn't fulfill the law. That's exactly right. They think that the, and why is that? Because they've been taught all their lives that the fall feasts are yet to be fulfilled. The spring feast happened at his first advent. The fall feast will happen at his second advent. That is not correct. They are all fulfilled in Christ. If you don't get that, go back and watch the Leviticus 23 sermons and you'll say, oh my gosh, they're all fulfilled in Christ. If they're not fulfilled, if we are waiting for a future fulfillment of those fall feasts, then Christ is not our atoning sacrifice, then we are not living in our tabernacle that Christ has given to us, awaiting you know our final glorification. And what's the third one? Oh, Christ wasn't born, because that's one of the fall feasts too, the birth of Jesus Christ. So um, there you go with that. He has fulfilled all of them, all right? And I, I would like to be able to tell them this without being, you know, like accusing and finger pointing. So I'll think it through and I'll figure out what to do. But it was very nice that he talked to them and that they had a good conversation. Anyway, therefore, to mandate observing anything like the fall feast from the law, which is fulfilled, instead of honoring Christ who did the fulfilling, is empty deceit. All right. Further, there are other Jewish philosophies such as Kabbalism, which are mere traditions and which are not even in accord with the law. And beyond that are countless other worldly philosophical systems which are merely idle ramblings of man. Okay, uh, one of them is the um, uh, Tom Cruise, what is it, Scientology. Okay, Scientology. I mentioned this guy last year. It's time to bring him up again, L. Ron Hubbard. He was the most published author in history. No person has written more than he has. And he said, I'm tired of writing for a penny a word. Okay, he said the real money is in religion. And so he started a religion. You talk about vain philosophy and the deceit of man. And people, they believe this stuff. Their entire lives are stolen away because of that nonsense. Okay, 
beyond that, are, including him and lots of others, are otherworldly philosophical systems which are merely idle ramblings of man, which are intended to do what? To draw the believer in Christ away from what is sound. Only when a philosophy is according to Christ can it be a reasonable and worthwhile philosophy. Okay, the first sermon I did on Genesis 1-1 was almost all philosophical in nature, but yet it was a logical philosophy. Okay, God is. Well, that's philosophical, but it's obvious. It's a logical conclusion. All right, A is. A is A. A is not B. And on and on you go down the line. And you can logically deduce things. God is the author of logic. He does nothing that is illogical, and anything that is illogical is not of God. And so we can know these things. So when you get into philosophical meanderings of people, you have to make sure that they are very, very closely aligned with the truth. And if they're not, then you can get just pulled away so quickly. Um, one of the things that I, I hear it all the time is, uh, you know, I, I just turn on the music and whatever plays on the internet, it plays. It's just background running music, and I don't care what it is, as long as it's not vile or something. But the Moody Blues comes up a lot. And he cites Descartes, one of them, I think it's Justin Hayward at the beginning, or one of them is citing Descartes. And he says, I think, Therefore I think I am. I am. Therefore, I am. And then he says, I think. <laughs> and then he goes into something and the computer starts talking to him and then he says, well, that can't be, okay? And it goes on from there. But um, uh, there's a point where you can get too far into a philosophy where it no longer makes any sense at all, okay? I think, therefore I am. And I think that's cogito ergo sum. All right? I think, therefore I am. Obvious on the surface. If you weren't, you wouldn't be thinking. Okay? So, but then people try to undermine that in various ways. Okay? We'll go on. Um, life application. As noted above, not all philosophy is bad, but one must be extremely careful to pay heed to what is being taught. If any doctrine, philosophy, or teaching draws one's attention away from Christ, it is empty deceit, and it is to be rejected. Always be sure to prepare yourself mentally for such things by being grounded in Scripture. Burke Carrico. Read Matthew 5.17. Matthew 5.17. Blessed are the... Hang on. No. no, no. no Matthew 5. Verse, oh, that comes after that. Okay, so hang on. I'm thinking of Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Yes. Okay, 517. Where is it? Oh, yeah. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And everybody comes and uses that, and they say, see, you've got to observe the law. That's not at all what he said. Fulfilled. It's fulfilled. He didn't destroy the law. He fulfilled it. He embodies it. People take that and they completely miss what Jesus is saying. And they use that all the time in the Hebrew roots. And they say, see, you've got to observe the law of Moses. That's not at all what he's saying. Right. The law, he tells you all the way through the entire thing. The law is going to condemn you. It's only going to bring you to a state of sadness. Come to me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Paul, our Peter later in Acts 15 calls the law a yoke of bondage. Peter calls it that in the book of Galatians. Why would you want to be under a yoke of bondage? You want to be free. That's a wonderful verse. It's logical and it's orderly, but it is only so if you take everything he says in the intent that he said it. Okay? He is not telling you to observe the law of Moses. He's telling you that he 
is the fulfillment of it and to put your trust in him. That's what he's telling Israel, okay? So, um, let's see here. We're, oh, yeah, 2-9. We're in 2-9. We're in 2-9. We are. But first, before we go further, yes. I just what you read in a few short verses from here is what you need to talk to your friend who's got the Masonic church that he goes or Messiah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's like, that's it right there. It's it just done. embodies it. And yeah. Just think of it because if he didn't fulfill it, then... That's right. Oh, and these things are, are a shadow. That's mm -hmm. all they are. They're a shadow. They're a type. Christ is the substance. Right. Okay. Because, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Okay. This one's the same thing, but different. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Okay. All the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All right. Two nine. There is an intentional emphasis. Okay of the words in Greek, which are intended to destroy the claim of heretics concerning who Jesus Christ is, in both role and nature. These emphatic words include all the fullness of the Godhead. Then the, hang on, then the word dwells and also the word bodily are all emphatic. Each is targeted against some heretical idea concerning Christ. It's a very important verse to understand, to think about. When you think about Jesus, you can think about him being the embodiment of all the fullness of the Godhead. All right? Think on that when you're driving down the road. Think on that when you see a tree and you see a flower open up. What did, you know, I was watching your video again because it's so good. Their newest video. If you haven't seen it, make sure you watch it. Sergio and Rhoda in Israel. It's, um, from, uh, uh, what is it, the Nephilim uh, uh, discovered in Capernaum. Oh, no, that wasn't that. It was uh, the ancient trail from uh, Chorazin to Capernaum, okay? And they, I was watching it last night or two nights ago again, and you're walking by those flowers, and you're trying to figure out what kind of flowers they are, right? Remember that? They're yellow, and they're this, and are these? Okay, and he said, um, uh, Jesus said that these are more resplendent than Solomon, okay? And yet tomorrow they're dried up and thrown in the fire, okay? Now think about that when you think about Jesus and him being the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He had the wisdom to design a flower that is more beautiful. And I, I, I that was Charlie Garrett paraphrase. I was not quoting what he said, so please don't uh, take offense at that. I was trying to think of the words and I couldn't, but he's uh, yet not Solomon that all of his uh, beauty was adorned like one of these. Yeah, all his glory. Thank you. Um, took a minute. I was My synapses were not firing properly. Anyway, so he uh, he's saying that a simple flower on the side of a trail that he ordained with his wisdom is more beautiful than everything that Solomon could do to himself. He's not saying that that flower is more important or more beautiful than Solomon, the human. He's saying that what Solomon has done, his great clothes and the weavings probably from some oriental market that were brought across the mountains all the way to Israel, and he's wearing these beautiful things and silk and all this stuff. Solomon wasn't arrayed like one flower on the side of the road, and there's billions of them. They were walking along, and they were showing the flowers, and the colors were amazing, okay? And they're just everywhere, okay? Think of that when you think of Jesus. Think of the 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 clouds going overhead and all the weight that is in them. You know, think of this. You got a 
storm that's going over and you right. can see it because it's a small storm all right and it's off in the distance as it comes by and it dumps on you for about 15 minutes right. and you go out and you pick up a five gallon bucket that was in the back of your truck and it's full of water and all that weight one little five gallon bucket there's probably eight pounds of water right there one gallon is 8.34 pounds so we'll say there's a gallon of water in that bucket eight pounds okay and that thing went over maybe a mile and a half by a mile and a half and it went and it keeps going and all that weight and yet you look up at the cloud and it's just floating around. This is the wisdom of God. And then you want to take that and think, Jesus, everything about what God has done and everything about what God is, is embodied in him. That is what Paul is trying to tell us. And he's trying to tell us that there are people that try to diminish this. And I'm going to read it again now that you have that in your mind. There is an intentional emphasis of the words in Greek, which are intended to destroy the claims of heretics concerning who Jesus Christ is in both role and nature. These emphatic words include, here they are, all the fullness of the Godhead. That's emphatic in the Greek. Then the word dwells, dwells, and also the word bodily. Those are all emphatic in the Greek. Each is targeted against some heretical idea concerning Christ. The words for in him, let me read it again so we know where we are. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The words for in him are speaking of Christ who was noted in the preceding verse. Paul then uses the word dwells. It is a word which indicates to reside or to settle down as a permanent resident. The fullness of the Godhead dwells. It resides in Jesus Christ. In Christ is this type of permanent dwelling where there is, as Paul says, all the fullness. This term recalls his earlier words in verse 119. We went back, let me read it to you because it's so wonderful. 119, it says, um, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. He's going back and he's re-bringing that up again. There can only be one sound and reasonable explanation for the statement. He, Jesus Christ, is the dwelling place of what will next be named, which is the Godhead. The word for Godhead, Theototis, is found nowhere else in Scripture, but it signifies God's essential personal deity as belonging to Christ. That's helps word studies. <laughs> From this, Paul adds on his final emphatic word, bodily. The word is somo, soma tikos. Okay, soma. You know the word uh, the book. Um, what was it? Um, soma. Remember um, what was it? Fahrenheit four fifteen. Or the, the, the book where the guy used the word Soma. And uh, anyway, it, it was one of those books back in the 80s where I think it was Fahrenheit 415. Anyway, 451. that 451, thank you. Whatever it is that paper burns or carbon burns, Fahrenheit 450, that degree. Anyway, I think that was the book. Soma. Anyway, he's using that word in that novel, Somatikos. And it is also found nowhere else in scripture. It is an adverb referring to the complete embodiment, the complete embodiment of the fullness of God. This then is contrasted to any supposed distribution of the Godhead through any other intermediaries. In other words, it is an argument against any heresy that Jesus Christ is anything other than fully God and the dwelling place of the Godhead. Jesus Christ. That's why Paul keeps using the term in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, all through his epistles. We are in Christ. 
Christ, God is in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Everything happens. Christ is the focal point of everything. Did you find what you're looking for? No. Okay. Um, she's looking. All right. Um, let's see here. So um, where was I now? Yes, this is then contra uh, fullness of God. Yes, in the dwelling place of the Godhead. All right, that's where I was. The word dwells is in the present tense. And therefore, it is denoting, this is Vincent's word studies, an eternal and essential characteristic of Christ's being. From all ages and unto all ages, Christ is the place where God dwells. As Christ took on human form, this means that the fullness of God chose to take up residence in this human form from that time on. Somebody just yesterday emailed me that. They said, uh, where is Christ's body now? Okay, the Jehovah's Witnesses say that he was raised in a physical body and then when he ascended, he went into a spiritual body. Okay, and that is, he is a spirit being. Now they've changed that theology because it used to be that they said he was raised a mighty spirit being. Okay, that's what the Jehovah's Witnesses used to say. Well, they can't say that because it says, look at me, I'm gonna eat this fish. Take my hands and put your finger here. So they finally have been called out so many times, they've obviously changed their theology. So now he was changed to a spirit being when he ascended, okay? And then what do they do? They go back and they say, there are numerous Old Testament references that uh, show this. And they, they say, uh, you know, uh, see, there are uh, angelic beings that are spirit beings, uh, such as in Genesis 18. Does anybody know what Genesis 18 is? Wasn't that the three that came to... Um, the three that came to, to Abraham. Right. And guess what one of them was? It was the Lord, Jehovah. It says right there, the Lord appeared to Abraham. Okay? So they're lying that there are people, and their people aren't going to check the references. They just take it for granted that they're telling the truth. And they do that elsewhere, such as in Judges, where the Lord appeared to Jephthah, or to Gideon. I'm sorry, Gideon. Okay, so they're, they're deceiving you. Well, this guy that emailed me said, you know, uh, where, is the, uh, uh, where is Jesus right now? And I don't know if he's the one that brought up the Jehovah's Witnesses because it might be another email. Anyway, I told him, I said, we don't know where Jesus is right now. He is a physical human being. No, I'm talking about the location, Burke. I'm not talking about he's in heaven, okay? I'm talking about right over by Alpha Centauri, okay? We don't know. He's a physical being. It doesn't matter if he's behind Alpha Centauri or if he's on the other side of the universe. He's in heaven, wherever that is. We know that much, okay? It says that specifically. He is at the right hand of God. I'm talking about the physical location. I'm not talking about the place of power that the Bible right speaks of. The, the right hand of the Father, which does God have a hand? No. It means the position of power. The right hand signifies authority, power, etc. Go in the Bible and read it and you'll see that. What is so, Alpha Centauri? It's a star over there, okay? It's just, you obviously didn't grow up with Star Trek, so I'm not talking to you anymore. <laughs> okay. yeah. Anyway, Alpha Centauri is a star. It's our nearest star to us, okay? And it's beside like- Beside the sun. Well, yeah, beside the sun. Uh, the nearest star beside the sun to us, okay? And it's, I, what is it, four light years or 4,000? It's, it's some great distance and a light year takes uh, a, a year at the speed of light to get there. It's way, way out there, and yet, yet it's our closest. Okay, anyway, and I, I think it's Alpha Centauri. If I'm wrong, please don't send me an email, but I do believe Alpha, Alpha Centauri is the near. You can look it up right now if you want. Is Alpha Centauri the closest star to ours? Okay. Soma is from Brave New World. 
Brave New World. I knew that. Soma is used in the book Brave New... Oh, Brave New World. Remember it? Did anybody read that? Great book. Okay. I, I got my, my 1980s thrillers messed up. Okay. Um, so anyway, um, that's where it is. We don't know where Christ is physically right now. Okay. He is physically... Right now, though, we know that. He's a believer. He's a well, yeah, but he's not physically inside of me. Okay, I, I'm talking about the physical being. I want to make sure that everybody understands what I'm talking about. Christ is now physical. He united, God united with humanity at the incarnation. That will never change. That's the point of what I'm saying. Right now, Christ is a physical being. Wherever he is, okay? There is a physical place where Jesus is. We can call it heaven, but that doesn't tell us where he is. It just means he's in heaven. I'm talking about where. His question was where. How do I know? I have no idea. I can't answer that. The Bible does not tell us that. It's simply... He's building a place for us. Yeah, he's building a place for us. Where is that? I have no idea. Like I say, it might be over in Alpha Centauri. I have no idea. Okay? It could be in Regulus 12 or Rigel 7. I mean, I don't know. Those are all Star Trek places. Okay, we're going to go on. Enough Star Trek. Okay, the words for, for in him are speaking of Christ, who is noted in the preceding verse. Paul then tells, uh, uses the word dwells. I already said that, so I can go on. Um, where was I? Vincent's Word Studies. I'll read this again now. From all ages and unto all ages, Christ is the place where God dwells. Here it is. As Christ took on human form, this means that the fullness of God chose to take up a human a residence in this human form from that time on. That is the important point that I'm making here. Everything else is just speculation. The person of Christ is the place from which all the fullness of the Godhead issues forth from. This is now eternally so. And this does not mean that Jesus is infinite. A finite cannot be infinite. It means that God is working through Christ. That's why I say it all the time when we're talking about the book of Revelation. Jesus Christ is the one who will forever, ceaselessly and endlessly reveal God the Father to us. Forever. Everybody got that? You cannot see an infinite. If you could see an infinite, you would be infinite. It is not possible. But we can see God as he infinitely reveals himself to us. That's why forever and ever we will be seeing God revealing himself to us. But we cannot see that infinite because we would be infinite and that is impossible. We're finite beings, okay? So understand the theology of Jesus. He is a physical being. He is somewhere right now. We can call it heaven, but that doesn't identify the location, okay, other than heaven. What Paul is doing is refuting heretics on the left and on the right. Those who deny his deity are proven false. Those who deny his humanity, even now, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, they deny both. They deny his deity always. They deny his humanity now, okay? They are also proven false. He is the God-man. This is Jesus. He is the place where all the fullness of the Godhead dwells, and his body is a real material body. To believe anything else is to believe the lies of the devil, because this is what the Bible tells us. It is something warned against by John with these words. As a matter of fact, I sent this to somebody a day ago. Who did I send this to? Here are the words. 1 John 2. Who is a liar 
but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. Is he saying they're both the same person? No. He's saying that there is a Father and there is a Son. If you deny the Father, you deny the Son. Okay? If you don't have the Son, whoever does not have the Son does not have the Father either. Heresy. And it's also like paints a picture of false Christ. Those who come and say, That's right. I am Christ. Or the oh, absolutely. Christ, Christ. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There were like this and there will be. Oh, yeah. and, but there's only one who's united with the body. One God. united that, with God. That is right. And that is that Jesus. It's more physical to understand. I never... Yeah. heard it this way before. Well, that's what it is. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Not just a spiritual being, but a physical, physical being. And he will always be that way. It yeah. cannot be otherwise. Yeah. And that's why I say that when you see the Lord Jehovah walk up to Abraham in Genesis 18, it is not a pre-incarnate Christ. I hate that term. People use it all the time. It is the eternal Christ. Hmm. It is Jesus coming out of the infinite realm and showing up in his own genealogy, in his own history, and showing Abraham something. And he does it again and again and again in the Old Testament. He appeared to Joshua, Jesus. It is not a pre-incarnation like God put on a, a body and walked up to them and then took the body off. He is forever the God-man. He had to go into heaven at the ascension and now he came back into his own how he does these things i don't know you know people make movies and we can say oh look at how real that is remember right. the movie time after time with um christopher reeves he went back in time he a great movie very touching he, he fell in love with a girl and he ended up going back in time and but it's kind of what the bible teaches about jesus people are thinking these things and they can they can make it happen in a movie and yet we don't believe it in the bible that doesn't make any sense. We see time travel movies all the time and we think, oh, well, that's possible. Okay. <laughs> it is. Jesus has done it. He's God. Well, yes. The good thing is. The, the man Christ Jesus, I can't get the verse, but, but, but it states. It says specifically, the yeah. man Christ Jesus. One of you guys can find it on your phone. I don't remember either. And I'll remember it right in the middle of the night unless somebody gets it now. But, okay, life application. And we'll have one more verse. We can get it. Life application to err in believing the truth, truth of what the Bible teaches about Jesus is an error which has eternal consequences. People flippantly treat the Trinity like it doesn't really matter, okay? Well, it does because if you teach it incorrectly to the next guy, that person isn't going to come to a saving knowledge of Christ, okay? You have to be precise in your theology or you are going to end up teaching people things that are incorrect and you are responsible for their not coming to the Lord. It's very serious thing. First Timothy 2 5. Let me read that before we go on. I'll read the life application in a second. First Timothy 2 5. Okay. First Timothy comes uh, after Thessalonians and before Titus. Okay. You got all the T, the T's together. Okay. So if you find one T, you're going to find them all. But uh, 1 Timothy 2, 5. Let's see if we can get one more page, Charlie. Okay, 2, 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time for which I was an appointed, appointed a preacher and an apostle. The man, Christ Jesus. Okay, so life application. 
To err in believing the truth of what the Bible teaches about Jesus is an error which has eternal consequences. The words of Scripture concerning both the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ are clear and precise. If you want to know more and you don't know more, watch our doctrine series. I did a series, 10 sermons on doctrine. They're found in the playlist on the Superior Word, and I go through 10 sermons, each detailing. One is the humanity of Christ. One is the deity of Christ. One is the Trinity, etc. These are laid out from Scripture so that you can understand basic theology, okay? To twist, to twist them away from either precept is to mock God, who has given us this word for us to accept. Don't be a denier. Put away your biases and presuppositions and bow your knee to Jesus Christ now while you have the chance. Okay, so we have uh, questions that we can ask. Is, um, <clears throat> is it necessary to believe in the uh, virgin birth in order to be saved? Okay, no. But is it necessary to believe in the Trinity to be saved? No, but, okay. The reason why is because the gospel is so simple. God made it so simple that anybody, even a little child, I was going to say something about Democrats, but I won't. Uh, a little child can believe, okay. The gospel is that you're a sinner, that Christ died for your sins, that Christ was buried and Christ rose again. That's what Peter just gave to Cornelius in the Acts that I read you. That's it. God made it so simple that, but we're the ones that add into it. Oh, you got to do this and you got to do that. No, you know, you, the the gospel is a simple thing. We, who is Christ though? Hold on, hold on. Don't get ahead of me. He made it simple. I need a savior. God gave a savior. I am saved by faith in what God has done. After that, if you are saved, you believe that gospel, the simple gospel. Do you, when you tell somebody about Jesus, do you explain the Trinity to them? No. Do you explain the virgin birth to them? No. no, there's no need to. God did not ask you to do that. He asked you to do something. They are now thinking what has been presented to them, like Cornelius, and they believe. God sent the Savior into the world. Okay, now, from there, you are going to start learning things. You're going to learn. I read the account of Luke and it says that there was a virgin. Okay. Now you could say, well, you know, I, I'm not sure if I believe that. That becomes a problem with you, not with the Bible that got you saved in the first place. The gospel is one simple thing. You are now saying, well, I don't think I believe in the virgin birth. That didn't stop you from being saved. But now here's the problem. I don't believe in the virgin birth, okay? I'm going to go to somebody on the road and I'm going to say, I've got something to tell you. I want to tell you about Jesus who saves. Now, people are going to tell you he was born of a virgin and he wasn't, okay? And so you have now believed and you have now taught somebody a false Jesus and they have believed in a false Jesus and Which that means. person will not be saved. Mm -hmm. If you tell somebody Jesus is not God, that person is not going to be saved because they are believing in a false Jesus. That's why God made the gospel so simple, is so that we can believe something without all of the other things that we need to know. When we learn them, we are to say, okay, I accept the virgin birth, and here's why I accept that, is because he must have been born by a virgin. If he wasn't, I've learned the Bible, I've read it, and I realized that sin travels from father to child. So he, she, he must have been born of a virgin. And so now I teach somebody, after they're saved, 
Jesus was born of a virgin. He is a member of the Godhead. Those things aren't required for salvation, but they are required to be known for salvation if they are presented wrong at the beginning. Do you see what I'm saying? If I somebody presents to you that Jesus is not God, you have to get that out of them before they will be saved. If they're believing in a Jesus that is not God, they will not be saved. God didn't put all that baggage on top of you because if he did, you would be every single precept of theology would be required for you to be saved. You see what I'm saying? Right. Because every bit of theology matters concerning Jesus. God didn't do that to us. So what if somebody gives the gospel and saying he was not burned? That's what I'm saying. Okay. If he He's, does that. It's a false gospel. That's, it's a I, false I, gospel I, I with the false that. Jesus. So right. I believe in a false Jesus. At some point, I start reading the Bible and I realize, oh, he was born of a virgin. Right. And he's God. At that point, am I saved? Or like, what, what happens then? Well, so, if you believe that. If you believe that I, I, that guy was wrong, Jesus is God, and you now believe that. And you yeah. say, I was wrong, Jesus, I want to be saved by you. That Yes, that's exactly what has to happen. And that's why I said, when I did my, my uh, sermon on Calvinism, I said exactly what you just said. False gospels imply a... False God. No, False they imply a true gospel. Well, if, right, well wait, 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 let me, let, wait, just let me speak. Yeah, You're going to okay. get me off on a tangent that I don't want to be on. If there is a false gospel and you've believed the false gospel, and this goes back to what they are saying about salvation, you're regenerated in order to believe. Right. That's what the Calvinists That's teach, they right? Say, right? They say that if you, you were regenerated in order to believe. Okay, so if somebody believes a false gospel, they're not saved. And then God comes along and regenerates them. What was he doing with them when they believed a false gospel? They say, they say that you don't have free will. What did he do when he believed a false gospel? He, he did you, what? He let you have your free will. He had free will. Mm -hmm. False gospels imply a true gospel. Okay? You must believe in order to be saved, and it must come from you, not from regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Calvinism is wrong. So go ahead and say what you're going to say now. Well, no, no, no. It was basically that. But it was like, you know, they, they if you don't know why Jesus had to be born of a virgin, and right. somebody's saying, well, maybe it wasn't that, and like, I don't know, and like, you know, and you, but you still believe that Jesus is who died on the cross for your sins, I'm not sure that, that, that you believe what he did on the cross, not so much what led no, up no, to no, the no, cross. No, 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 no. You believe in the person that died on the cross. That's what you believe. If somebody tells you a if false like, Jesus, right, but if then you are believing them. a false gospel. Right. That is right in Galatians 1. we got to be precise about well, okay, this. Okay, you're right. But if you were know told that Jesus was a sinful person right. and he died on the cross, right. he cannot save you. I get it. The get virgin it. birth is a heresy to not okay. believe or to teach wrong. Don't get into all That's so, why I well, say when you give some, wait, wait, when you give somebody the gospel, you must be very careful to be quick and precise about what you say. And they're thinking all this through. Human beings are not stupid. Right. It's we that inject them with false ideas. Mm -hmm. Give them the simple gospel, explain to them what Jesus did, and they will believe it and be saved. And then after that, you can give them all of the information they need. That is called discipleship. Right. That is necessary. Yeah, but I guess the question is, how much is that simple gospel entail detail inside of it? For example, is it important to say that he had no sin or you can skip that part, because if you skip that part... What does it say in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4? That's what you need to remember when you give somebody the gospel. That is what you need to remember. You read it. Not me, you read it. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. 
Have you got it? Go ahead, read it out loud. Nice and loud so everybody can hear it. This is what God has made so simple that we don't want to throw any baggage onto this. Okay? Go ahead. For, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by... Oh, that's five, sorry. Okay, that's fine. That's it. That's all He asks us to believe, that God sent the Savior into the world. He died for our sins. Now, people are sitting there thinking this. They're thinking while you're telling them this. You don't need to explain all the details of theology. We've been doing that now for 10 he years. He everything. He rose. He that's have, right. He couldn't have risen if he was sinful. If he, that's right. what I'm trying to tell you. That's, people, wait. People are processing that while you're telling them that. They are processing it. They're not stupid. I have been teaching this in this church now for 10 years. Okay? Actually, 11 because it was two years on the beach. And I'm still not done telling people about what Jesus did. Okay, don't get into the baggage. Give them the gospel. They are processing. They are, they are getting the right information. That's what God has done. He has given us the most simple thing to get us saved. And from there, as I like to say, we can spend the rest of our lives screwing up our own theology. Okay, because people don't want to know it. But if you want to get people saved, give them a story about what God has done. Talk about how he gave a people called Israel the law, okay? Talk about how he gave, uh, you know, all of these things in the Old Testament and how they point to the coming Christ. That's fine. Give them a story because people need to process things. But eventually, you've got to give them the simple gospel. Don't introduce a lot of other stuff because if you do, all it's going to do is confuse them. God made the gospel simple so that people will get saved, okay? When people go over to Papua New Guinea for a two-week missionary tour, they give the gospel. They don't teach a lot of theology. They just give the gospel. But it's fascinating that this verse includes that he was born in the verse. That's why I say people are processing the right information. According to the scripture. According to the scripture. But that's that's what's important. If they ask, what does that mean? Mm. Then you explain it to them. And if you explain a false Jesus, guess what you're going to do? They're not going to get saved. Okay, that is why you have to be properly trained in their questions because they will come sometimes. Sometimes people just accept the gospel and that's it. Sometimes people say, well, what about this and what about that? You need to be right when you answer those questions. If you're not sure, say, I will get back to you right away. Don't delay on that. And the the gospel is so simple and so short in a way. Why is it so difficult for many people to... I don't know. People just want to keep up on top of that. uh, Even a lot of preachers out there, they're telling people to repent of their sins. And it's like, I tried that before, and it's so big. All that does does is muddy the waters of Jesus. That's all it does. We don't want to muddy the waters. I don't remember where I was. Are we in 110 or 210? We're just about to get in 110. Okay, so we haven't started 110? We We, have not. We can't. We can't (laughs) because uh, did I read the life application from two? We only got four more minutes, so we can't. What's that? You didn't finish it? Oh, you didn't? Did we start? Did we start 10? No. Okay, well then that's where we're going to start next week is 10. Okay, we we had some questions there and I don't want to... you know, skip over them. Now, I did finish 2-9, though. Is that correct? Yes. yes. Okay. Don't be a denier, denier. Put away your... Are you sure that we, we finished the life know. application? No, we have to go through a lot of stuff. remember to finish the life application. Okay, life application. Oh, yeah, here it is. To air, I didn't. I got halfway through it. 
To err in believing the truth of what the Bible teaches about Jesus is an error which has eternal consequences. That's what we were just talking about. Okay, the words of scripture concerning both the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ are clear and they are precise. To twist them away from either precept, oh, I did read that, is to mock God who has given us this word for us to accept. Don't be a denier. Put away your biases and presuppositions and bow your knee to Jesus Christ now while you have the chance. That's the last sentence I didn't read, so there you go. All right, we got to close because it's time to close. Um, Got that. Heavenly Father, we thank you. What a precious word you've given us. And what a simple gospel of our salvation. Help us to keep it clear and precise and help us not to muddy the waters which you have so perfectly and purely given us. And then from there, we can spend all of our time telling people about what is right and proper. And if they don't believe it, Lord, help them to find a teacher that will instruct them correctly because we want people to be properly trained. We want them to be uh, right thinking, and we want them to also go out and also tell about Jesus in a right and proper and simple way, the, the gospel which you have given us. Thank you for that. Thank you for Jesus, our Lord, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Oh, good stuff. Yeah, it's all right there. Everything we need is right there in the gospel. So, um, oh, let me turn off the thing here before we... To your point, the simple gospel, I think most people don't like taking me 